Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us again for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. At the end of every podcast, I always offer an invitation that anybody who wants to give a comment, uh, ask a question, make a suggestion for future things to discuss, that they do so by contacting us. And I have to tell you that as of late, we've been getting a number of different questions. And I have to say, they're not easy questions. So the first impulse is to say, do we really want to talk about this? Charles, do we want to go down that road? And we've both come to the conclusion that this podcast is not about giving you the definitive answer. It's about helping you think more biblically in terms of whatever the question is to go behind it, as our tagline says, and develop a biblical perspective on how to approach the question and then answer the question. So, Charles, today we are going to discuss what are the limits of fellowship? I'll let you start. Well, I'm reminded of something someone said concerning Calvinist churches and Calvinists generally that uh, some, I think, probably undeservably have the reputation of being somewhat dour or cold or or whatever the case may be. I'm sure there are people like that in every church or whatever. But they, um, the comment was, well, that church practices the sixth point of Calvinism, which is limited fellowship. In other words, they weren't very friendly. And uh, unless you agreed with everything and every jot and tittle that they put the emphasis on, then they weren't interested in having you around. But, you know, it raises the larger question of, like everything else that we've been dealing with in these discussions and what we deal with in daily life, what is the foundation of what we think and how we act on this particular issue or that? I mean, we know how the big ticket items are. What is the foundation of understanding of educating our children? What does a family look like? Uh, What does it mean to be a Christian in an age when things are very anti-Christian? As I said, I'm calling those the big ticket items, but what about friendship? You know, how are we to think about that? And that may not seem like such a, a an important issue, but the nature of the question that I think that we received was, what do we think biblically and how are we to behave in terms of what God's law teaches us regarding people who we would consider friends in terms of their being very different than us on some foundational issues in some of the areas that I've already mentioned and perhaps some others. And it's a tough question because we live in a culture that by and large has abandoned Christianity as a standard and biblical law as a reference point. Now, that makes it hard, right? If, if the majority of people you run into, work with, uh, live next to, don't share the same core beliefs, in a very real sense, it's hard to call yourself part of a community because, as Mark Rajuni put it in one blog piece, there is no community without communion. So what do we even mean by the communion of saints, as we state it in the Apostles' Creed? 
And I think part of what has happened with the humanism that crept into the church and now lives there rent free in many cases is that we've surrendered a perspective in order to be more likable, more friendly. What, what do you think about that? Well, I totally agree. On the other hand, there may be something of a rebound or reaction, maybe not in every case or maybe not even right now that we might be aware of. But within the circle of Protestant uh, churches, we know that there are those who have considered themselves fundamentalists. I mean, they've owned that term. I mean, originally, uh, fundamentalist was somebody who agreed with the basic core doctrines of biblical religion, you know, virgin birth, deity of Christ, uh, literal resurrection, these sorts of things. But, you know, in the early 20th century, it came to be morphed into something not only containing that, but also the issue of personal holiness and limiting fellowship or separating from those who not only don't agree with those points of doctrine, but also in terms of how they live their lives. And so, you know, there's a sense in which maybe that kind of thinking went too far in that none of us is perfect. And if we simply limit the people that we will have any kind of serious interaction with to those that we deem morally perfect because they don't do this, that, and the other, or they do do this, then obviously we are practicing in the negative sense of that term, limited fellowship, perhaps in a way that Jesus would not have had us want to do. And the people who sort of pioneered this particular morphed version of fundamentalism went on to perfect, if I can use that term, something they called second level separation. So in other words, if you, Andrea, are friends with somebody and that person is, say, a a, a member of a non-Christian religion, and I know that you happen to be a friend of theirs. And that, that's something we're going to talk about in a, in a little bit, I suspect. But so I, I would not associate with you. I would separate from you because although you're not a member of that non-Christian religion, you're friends with somebody who is. So uh, that stains me by having this second level connection to this person you're friends with. So I think that to some extent, uh, in addition to the swan song of the culture, you know, just let up. It's not that important. You can have all this stuff going on in your church and your personal life, and don't worry about it, whether it conforms to God's law or not. There has been, at least at some point, a reaction uh, to that kind of so-called second-level separation, which I don't think is biblical myself. Well, I'm not going to agree or disagree with what you said just then, because you look back in history, American history, And there were the pilgrims who could also have been labeled separatists that they didn't want themselves or their families to be part of a culture that went against what they believed. And then there were the Puritans who weren't necessarily attempting to be separatists. They wanted to purify or to make right areas where they felt that people had gone off the rails. So I think there's a valid point of consideration to say, depending on your situation, one might choose one or the other. But I think the key to what you said was about the early 20th century. That was also the rise of pietism, where it was important to look holy on the outside because you were appealing to an audience 
potentially other than God, because there are a lot of people who are pietistic, outward shows of holiness, but they don't conform to a biblical way of living. The law of God is not the basis on how they make their decisions. So the situation becomes complicated because if you go back to a um, decidedly Christian culture, people weren't going to regularly have to deal with those who were adulterers. They weren't regularly going to have to deal with an outward show of the acceptability of homosexuality and all that that entails. And so I'm thinking in response to this particular listener's question that the greater issue is that Christians have given up the idea of a Christian society and they're afraid of being viewed as a society in a greater humanistic society. I think there's something to that. Um, on the other hand, I mean, thinking back to the times when you and I, for example, were both younger when there was at least the veneer of a Christian society. I don't know about where you grew up, where I grew up. I, I, I don't think there was anyone, for the most part, that I interacted with for the first, I don't know, 10, 12 years of my life who was not a, quote, Christian. They went to some place that was considered a Christian church. I mean, we had a few uh, Mormons here or there. Uh, there were some Roman Catholics, uh, but most were Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, you know, we, the, the part of the country I grew up in, that, that was the way it was. And so uh, we were friends. But that raises the question at, at any point in any culture, you know, what exactly does that look like? I think everybody listening knows what it means to have a friend. But like we're talking about this, I brought it up about the different levels of separation. Well, that gets right to the issue of the different levels of friendship. There are people that we know that we would be considered uh, having a friendly connection to them, but maybe we haven't ever spent that much time with them. There are other people that we know that we have not only a friendly connection, but we would consider them really good friends. So we, and we have different ways of expressing that, you know, a, a faithful friend, a, a bosom buddy. Um, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 6, uh, God's word says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, the constructive criticism of a friend is, is helpful, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And then in verse 10 of that same chapter, do not fit, forsake your own friend or your father's friend. Uh, and so there, there's these different exhortations about friends, especially in the book of Proverbs. So I think the, the email from the listener was getting at that point about, okay, I've got some people in my circle who are friends, but then I, I know they maybe don't embrace a full orb Christian view, or maybe I don't remember all the details, but I think people can fill in the blanks for themselves. How can you form a close friendship? I don't want, I'm not, I'm specifically not using the word intimate. How can you form a close friendship with someone, say, who is uh, of a, di a completely different faith than Christianity? or claims to be a Christian, but embraces a form of Christianity that is almost universally accepted as, if, if not heretical, profoundly mistaken? Or how can you embrace someone as a friend, as a close friend, say, who practices a lifestyle that involves certain moral activities that are considered unlawful according to God's law? Now, th these are the questions we're trying to wrestle with. And 
we'll talk about a little bit later. I'm not sure about you, but I've had situations like this early in my Christian life where I had to deal with that issue. And that's what's interesting when we talk about early Christian life. When I first um, encountered Dr. Rushduni in Chalcedon, and we determined, my husband and I determined that this was a man who understood the scripture as he was pointing us to God's law as the standard. I would come up with the kinds of questions that our listeners are sending into us. And I would go to him and I'd say, okay, what's the way to do this? And he would answer and say, well, it's not quite as simple as you're asking. And it was like, I wanted an answer. Just <laughs> tell me what to think. Tell me how to think. And he would refuse to do it. Because there's a process. Wisdom comes with the fear of the Lord. And with the fear of the Lord is, I am not going to go against God's will. I'm not going to go against God's stated commandments. And then once you embrace that and you hang out with that, then you get understanding. And it's like, okay, I see why this would be true as you learn more of the the scripture. And then comes the all-important discernment being able to tell the difference between one thing and another. And so Jesus told us, you will know them by their fruits. He didn't say you would know them by their profession of faith. He didn't say you would know them by the address they show up at on Sunday mornings. He didn't even say you would know them based on where they worked because there were a lot of unsavory professions that Jesus welcomed tax collectors. He he was not averse to dining with people who were prostitutes, etc. I think the more fundamental point is we have made friendship something that earlier times would not be defined as what we call friendship. You can have a friend on Facebook. How is that person your friend? Well, you clicked a button. That was your friend. I've defriended you if I don't like you anymore. And I friended you if I want to know more about your life. So I think we need to go back to the definitions of what does it mean to have a friend as opposed to having acquaintances, having people who live next door to you or people who show up at the same job you do. And what are our responsibilities there that are different than the idea of being in fellowship? Well, let's take the example of someone that uh, you meet either at uh, the the gym, the workout facility, uh, or maybe just shopping somewhere and you strike up a conversation with a sales representative. And that's not typically considered a friendship. Uh, it means you share a common interest either in physical health or this particular item at the store. But if that kind of interaction goes maybe to another level, okay, I, I'll give an example. There's a fellow at the YMCA where I work out, and he's roughly my age or a little bit younger, but I noticed that this man, he works out a lot. He carries himself in such and such a way that it made me wonder if he'd ever been in the military. I didn't know anything about him. We, we would see each other and say, hey, how are you doing this morning? You know, that kind of thing. And finally, one day I stopped him. I said, you know, if I ask you a question, I said, uh, I'm really impressed the fact that uh, you work out so consistently. And we had a little chat and got told each other a few things about our age and all that sort of thing. So that went from the level of simply being a, a casual, how well, hello, how are you? And we recognize we're pretty much there at the Y the same time every morning to, okay, 
we sort of had a friendly interaction. And if somebody asked me, do you know this particular fellow? I'd say, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're friends. But I don't mean that in the same way, say, for example, if I had had this man and his family at my house for a meal several times. That's a, that's a different level. But you've got to get to one in order to get to the other. That's just simply the way it goes. And it's interesting, too, there's a connection here relating to the subject of, again, the word intimacy is maybe has a different connotation in our culture. But in ancient cultures, one way that you indicated your intimate relationship, and I'll say more serious relationship with another person, is the fact that they would know your name. The sharing of a name was a very considered a very intimate thing. And it, it indicated a, a level of acquaintance that was beyond just simply the typical or the ordinary. And yes. you, you can see this in our culture. If you next time you're out walking down the sidewalk somewhere at a mall and you see somebody, you walk up to them and say, excuse me, would you tell me your name? <laughs> and you can see the reaction you're probably going to get because you're asking for a connection that's just not, it, it's sort of out of the ordinary. Well, that reminds me of when I was growing up, um, you would never use somebody's first name unless you were invited to use their first name. And certainly a young person would never just come up and greet you by your first name. It was Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. And the idea of you don't know me well enough to call me by my first name was something that was pretty common, at least when I was growing up. It's interesting that you say that because I am a huge fan of the Andy Griffith show. Uh, I, I watch that all the time, the, the, the early episodes in black and white. It's, it's been a favorite show of mine for years, and I find especially nowadays it's, it's about the only thing for me worth watching on television. And it's interesting that Andy Griffith's son in the series, Sheriff Taylor's son, Opie, well, it's interesting. There are people in that series and in, in the situation where he, as a little boy of, say, 10 or younger, he refers to adults by their first names, uh, except for a school teacher who he calls Mrs. So-and-so. Uh, but there, uh, it's like I, I, that is absolutely no reflection on reality in the early 1960s in the world that I knew. And I'm guessing the same for you. you a, yes. a little a young person, a boy, a girl would never address an adult by their first name. Right. And so you can look at how something like a show that you like was beginning to introduce things culturally that would not have been the prevailing situation. I know to this day, there are young people who I'll say, you know what, call me by my first name. You're a mother, you've got children. And it's as if I have asked them to stick a knife in their finger um, <laughs> could I please just call you Mrs. Schwartz? And it's like, okay, yeah. I, I don't want to cause you stress, but if we had just met each other on an airplane, I would have introduced you and given you my first name and vice versa. But because it was this level of respecting someone who was older, it was about a lack of, you didn't want to assume a familiarity. And so I think that's part of this question Maybe we need to redefine our relationships so that we can answer the question biblically. What are the limits or the boundaries of fellowship? What's the, the line that we say, I'm in fellowship with this person or I'm not? And that's what we really want to be about in this discussion and all the others is thinking biblically about everything. 
because God's word applies to every aspect of life, including friendship, marriage, child rearing, as we've said. And I think we maybe can start out by making a distinction or go the next step and make a distinction between being, or excuse me, having civil interactions with another person that you don't know that well, being courteous, not being insulting, you know, observing the uh, basic principles of proper deportment and, and interaction with another person versus, may I know your name? Could you tell me how old you are? Tell me a little bit about your life. That's wanting to go to a next level. And again, going back to the question that the, the, the listener asked us, this can be a, an important challenge for those who wish to maintain fidelity to what God requires of us. You know, this is a, 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 a cutting edge issue because too often, and for too long, Christians have not really paid that much attention to this matter. I mentioned earlier, there was a time that you and I knew and others perhaps listening to us where we could reasonably assume that most of the people we're going to be interacting with on a day-to-day, if not weekly basis, more or less had the same values, regardless of how dedicated they were to them. They generally respected the the, the basic principles of the Ten Commandments. And that's no longer the case. And even then, maybe that should have been a little more caref- carefully uh, discerned. So how far do I go if I do get to know someone and I do find out that they are involved, say, in a, in a different religion or they practice some objectionable moral thing that our society says is just perfectly wonderful and okay, but God's law strictly forbids. Well, what do I do with that? Well, God's word tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.14, and this has been an often quoted passage, especially in the context of fundamentalism that I mentioned earlier, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness. Now, I want to read that from a couple of other translations. Um, One translation has it, stop forming inappropriate relationships with unbelievers. Can right and wrong be partners? And yet another, do not keep company with those who have not faith for what is there in common between righteousness and evil. Obviously, that raises the question, well, am I just going to completely cut off people who don't believe the same thing I do? Uh, maybe that's an important thing to consider doing. There's a right way and wrong way to do that. Obviously, if you get to know someone uh, casually and you learn this or that about them, uh, hopefully you have discerned those sort of things before you say, well, why don't you come on over for dinner tomorrow night? Uh, Because at that point, you might want to say, that's not something I'm going to do. I can't go to that level of friendship with this person because this would be an impediment. And if, if the Lord in his mercy and grace provides an opportunity, you, you can tell them, explain to them. And I think this is an open door for us to bear witness to the truth. And, of course, now there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. These verses that I read are not an invitation to be arrogant um, and to uh, scorch people with our attitudes. But we recognize that we have principles that the Lord expects us to uphold, and if we don't, then there are going to be consequences. And I think that's what I was referring to before about a Christian society. Mm-hmm. You know, we have lots of behaviors today and lifestyles, and they're granted their own little cultures. And I doubt sincerely that people who carry out the actions and have the philosophy 
really sweat too much over how am I not going to offend the Christian who doesn't think like I do. And what's counted on is the fact that Christians are supposed to take the Great Commission seriously. But this is where I think the confusion comes in. Yes, we're to make disciples. In order to make a disciple, that means someone has to know who it is they're supposed to follow. That means that there's got to be at least sufficient education as to who Jesus Christ is, what the law of God is, and how would you decide faithfulness as opposed to unfaithfulness, covenant keeping as opposed to covenant breaking. Certainly, Jesus wasn't saying only hang out with people who are already good and and well-versed in the law of Moses and the prophets and what I've taught you. No, he was saying, go out and conquer. So the Great Commission is a call to conquer the world for Christ. But when we change that to we really need to build bridges, we really hope that by our actions and our friendliness, we will quote unquote win people to Christ. I think it's an accommodation that most people think is biblical. So how do I put this in context? Read in the book of Revelation, the messages that were sent to the seven churches and listen to what Jesus says when he commends them and listen to what Jesus says when he reproves them. And maybe just maybe people will get the point I'm making that have we compromised under the banner of being nice and friendly and accessible at the expense of proclaiming the law and the testimony and saying, this is going to end you up in eternal destruction, and this will end you up in the presence of the Lord. That is an excellent reference. And uh, not only because in the letters to the seven churches, Jesus addresses some of these specific issues that we're talking about right now, but also because those folks were in a context and situations that parallel where we are today in the modern church almost exactly. Those churches were in a part of the Roman Empire. Well, they were in the Roman Empire to begin with, which is a non-Christian culture. But um, I'm actually preaching a message this coming Sunday, Lord willing, on the subject of one of those letters to the church at Philadelphia. And one of the points that you learn about that particular church and that particular city, which is in the area we know today as Turkey, is that it had been for many, many centuries an outpost for both Greek and Roman culture as a means of, quote, civilizing pagans, what they considered pagans, making them more like Greeks in terms of literature and believing in their religions and their gods. And then the Romans just simply took that over and made it their approach. And the point I plan to make is that, well, we are supposed to be God's embassy. You know, we are supposed to be that outpost for Christ's empire. And, so if you're in a context where you are, quote, in the minority in an increasingly pagan culture or one that has been that way from the beginning as they found themselves, the Lord uh, condemned some of those churches because they did not practice this separation that I referred to earlier. And in the sense that 
you know, not that you would see somebody in the in the marketplace or the bazaar of the of the city of wherever, and you know that person to be a pagan, and they say hello to you, and you just stick your nose up in there and walk on by. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are let into the fellowship of God's people, and they are allowed to promote ideas and beliefs and practices that are absolutely not to be done or believed according to God's law word. And this raises this whole question about limited fellowship, because, you know, it's sort of like the example of a person who struggles with drunkenness. Well, you don't become a drunkard by just starting out and never, ever taking a drink. And then you get up one morning and just say, hey, I think I'm going to be a drunkard. And you go immediately get drunk. That, that's, I, I guess maybe that's happened somewhere, but almost never does it happen that way. It's a right. gradual process. And the same thing with compromise in terms of our personal lives and our moral lives, our, our theological lives. If we allow the connection to go too far, we run the risk of destroying our testimony, as you just said, but also becoming uh, affected by this false belief. And Jesus doesn't mince words when it comes to what will happen if you don't change your behaviors and the things you accept. Because Maybe people are familiar with this term, maybe not. The idea of syncretism. We're going to take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and a little bit from here, put it all into what we'll call Christianity. And so then when we invite people to come to church, they'll see a lot of what they're already familiar with. And I even got to thinking, Charles, and this might horrify some people, (laughs) but I'm prepared for that. What's the whole idea of inviting people to church and thinking, that's going to change them. See, <laughs> yes. we're basically saying, you can come to our church. We want you to come to our church. Please come to our church. This is an outreach. But when they get there, they're told how happy um, everybody is that they're there. In some cases, you'll applaud, oh, you're a new person here. But you don't also then hear, this is what membership here means. This is what coming here means. This is what you're disavowing by being a part of the fellowship. And I think it becomes a cop-out. It's like we want to build our church. How about individuals, instead of just inviting someone to church, disciple someone so that at the point at which they are eager to understand how to obey God, then you'll say, come visit, be with other people who think like the Bible says we should think. Instead, it's like, We're just open. We're so desperate that we'll take anybody. We won't vet them. So we won't know if they're going to bring in philosophies and things that are contrary. And that's exactly what was happening in the early church. That's where a lot of the heresies took root. You had Greek thought that had no problem with temple prostitution. So, hey, these people come in. They wanted us here. And so we're going to import what we think is right as opposed to be schooled and catechized in terms of, no, the things that you're doing are an abomination to God. You mentioned earlier the uh, the rise or the influence, in, as I mentioned in early, early 20th century fundamentalism, the influence of pietism. And both of those aspects of uh, early American Protestant evangelicalism and fundamentalism suffered greatly in that they tended to be antinomian. And the idea was you just ask Jesus into your heart. You have a good feeling. You, you be quote, become saved. 
and then you just go to church every Sunday and hopefully you you know you tell people they should not do this and not do that and, and so they won't go to hell. All that's okay as far as it goes, but that's just the problem. It doesn't go near far enough. And so we have have had generations of people who considered themselves, quote, Bible-believing Christians who had no understanding about anything related to larger society. And this issue is a prime example. There is no such thing among most Christians of, of having a, as of having a theology of friendship. We need a theology of friendship, and the Bible gives us one, but how many people are taught that? And so this is what we're trying to discuss and get at in this discussion is how does it look from God's standpoint, from the foundation of how we are to be living our lives? You're going to follow some foundation. You're going to live your life based on something, and that something is what has authority in your mind, in your heart, in your life, and you will proceed to live according to that authority. And if it's not God's law word, it's going to be something else, and that will lead to tragedy in the long run. So, you know, in in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 3, is the very famous passage, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And, you know, that can be applied in a number of different ways, but it certainly raises this issue. Can we cooperate? Can we move together? Can we have, you know, a connection together unless we are agreeing in the direction that we are going? Okay, I, you know, I might be of one particular denomination, uh, somebody else may be of another, but if we are agreed on the basics of the fundamental truths of God's word and the authority of his law, yes, we can walk forward. You may have a different view on baptism than I do, etc., but we can move forward on this. But if there is not that agreement, then we need to think twice about, okay, what's more important here, having a, quote, friendly connection with someone who is... Well, let, let's, let me throw something else in the mix. In Second Chronicles 19.2, um, there's this interesting discussion uh, between uh, Jehu, the seer, and King Jehoshaphat. And he says to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate Yahweh? And therefore, the wrath of God is upon you. <laughs> I mean, that's a fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves in this day and time. Should we help the wicked and love those that hate the Lord and then not be stunned or be pretend to be stunned that God's wrath has come upon us? I think as a society, this is what we're seeing in our time. So when Jesus says, let your light shine before men so that they see your good works and glorify your father in heaven, you don't stop it at they see your good works. Oh, he shows up on time, you know, and he leaves, you know, after all the work is completed, even if, you know, five o'clock comes around. It's so they see what motivates you the same way with being told to be the salt of the earth. Salt can be a preservative. It can be a seasoning. But if you cease to do what you're supposed to do as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, then you'll be thrown on the ground. And so when other people walk down, they won't slip. Okay, I, that's not the highest calling for the Christian to be that which makes other people not slip on a slippery ground. So instead of saying, well, then that means that you're not going to deal with anybody that you work with. You know, where I'm from, a lot of people have to work with transgender people and are told that you must use their pronouns. Now, the Christian has a decision to make. How, how does he or she navigate through that? 
um, the listener who wrote into us happens to be in a field that is heavily populated by people who are homosexual. Well, some people would say, well, get out of that field. Well, no, this has to do with music. This has to do with, you know, glorifying God in music. And yet there are a lot of people who gravitate toward this, who are practicing homosexuals, quote unquote, married homosexuals. And this person's question was, how do I have a professional relationship and not give out my, not give up my area of dominion because other people show up? And so in helping him view this, my answer was, okay, let me just make it clear here. Is this the only sin that troubles you? Let's look at all the sins that God says should be met with capital punishment. It's not just homosexuality. It's adultery, murder, you know, incorrigibility. It's kidnapping, things like that. And I found there are believers who think that it's perfectly okay to hang out with somebody who plays the field and is a fornicator or is cheating on his wife. And everybody knows he's cheating on his wife because it's the staple that when she calls in and he's not there, that you're supposed to say, oh, he's busy right now. He's with a customer or whatever. Have we drawn a line in the sand that says homosexuality is by far the worst Therefore, we can't associate with them, but we won't do the same thing in terms of other sins that God considers very serious as well. Yeah, some of these sort of things take care of themselves by God's grace. If the person who's struggling with the relationship with the, the, the sinful person, let's say, and I'll use a personal reference. I have had connections with people in my previous life long before I went to seminary. And before I would, I would say I was walking a cons- consistent Christian life that were involved in lifestyles and doing things that were ab- abhorrent to God's law. And whether you move from a position of being okay with that, because just, that's just the way it is in society and culture, you're, you're okay with people the examples you used who are adulterers, fornicators, all these other things to a point where you realize this is something that profoundly displeases the Lord and you should not be giving the impression it's okay. You know, how do you deal with that? And most people find, I think, that in terms of having friendships with people that way and they're moving in a direction of not being approving of it, it will take care of itself in the sense that you just don't have that much to talk about anymore. And the friendship sort of goes by the wayside. Now, on the other hand, if you're in a professional situation where you're interacting with people who, in the circumstance we described from the uh, the listener, well, you have some control over that. The, the comment was attributed to Martin Luther. Uh, I don't know if he actually said it, but it's certainly claimed that he did, that he, he and that doesn't make it right, but he said, you know, I would rather live under the administration of uh, a competent uh, Muslim than an incompetent Christian. You know, the, the idea that, okay, on a professional level, the, the guy who, who maybe is doing my surgery, the, the man who's repairing the traffic light that's gone out, uh, maybe I'm not really that concerned at this point about where he goes to church or doesn't go to church. That's kind of a professional connection. And, you know, I think I'm right that in ancient Israel, uh, there were strangers, aliens, who were outside the covenant, 
they were allowed to live, you know, in the environs. They weren't allowed to propagate their religion and subvert the truth. But, you know, we've always had a situation where uh, unbelievers and people of different persuasions have been around. The key question is, you know, how do we properly interact with them on that professional basis? And do how do we stay on our guard to say, no, you know, I, in my own heart, in my own mind, I've got to keep this on this level because to go any further with this is going to open a door and give that person the wrong impression that I'm somehow approving uh, of their lifestyle, of, of what they say they believe, when in fact I don't and I shouldn't. But I think it goes further than that. It's true. You need to be on guard. You don't want to have fellowship with those who are at war with God, because by definition, it's not fellowship with God, right? Um, you're, you're not in fellowship with God if you're in fellowship with them. It, it's not you can do both. You can't be on the fence. You can't be neither hot nor cold on, on these things. There's no neutrality, right? Right. But if in the process of the interaction that has to take place as part of your job or part of where you um, live, or even if you have a business, are you going to say, I, I must deal with all people all the time? It used to be that people had a right to refuse service to anyone. Well, how have the enemies of God tried to undercut Christianity by forcing people who are photographers or florists or caterers that you must do something that you don't approve of? So a lot of people ask the question, well, how do you keep your business and still do that? Maybe in God's will, you don't keep your business. Maybe it's more important you take a stand for, I'm sorry, I will not violate my conscience. And as long as we think the only acceptable outcomes here are ones that don't hurt our bottom line, then I suggest you go back and read not only the Acts of the Apostles and see what it costs them, but go read Fox's Book of Martyrs and discover that not everyone who stood for Christ ended up with a nice retirement and the ability to go vacation whenever they wanted to. It's going to cost you something because if you value what salvation truly means, then it is the pearl of great price that's worth everything else. So I believe we can still interact with people, the guy who's fixing the light, the person who works next to you on the assembly line, uh, the person who comes into your business and wants you to refurbish their, their, their furniture. But we need to be salt and light. And I attempt anyway, whenever I'm around somebody who I don't know, I'll start talking about, oh, this is very much like what we talked about, the sermon I heard, or the Bible says this. In other words, I'm going to continue to let my light shine. Maybe the person's interested, maybe the person's not, but I at least will have stated something that could open the door for further inquiry. I think that's a very important part of it. And again, learning to know where to draw that line, where to be cautious um, about moving out of that particular connection to something that would lead you into compromise uh, this is something that we have to pay close attention to. Uh, you use the example of somebody having a business and uh, having to be compelled to uh, serve people who violate God's law. Well, you know, if I'm, let's just say I, uh, oh, I don't know. Let's say I have a coffee shop and I have, you know, I, I sell coffee and, and pastries. And um, 
I have all kinds of customers. I don't ask them questions. Uh, they come in. They come in for the coffee and the pastries, and they enjoy it, and they go. Now, if I start to have customers, say, who are visibly promoting a lifestyle and saying more or less, I'm coming into your business, and I want you to know that I embrace this godless um, teaching and lifestyle that God's law condemns. What I don't think that way about it because I think it's okay, but I want you to know I practiced it and I'm one of your customers. You know, that creates a little different dynamic. And we have to ask that question, okay, well, what are we going to do about that? What does the Lord require of us? And I don't know. I, I struggle with that myself in the sense that it may depend on some cases or others. And on the other hand, like you said, there's a sense in which we are called to pay the price uh, on the short run. Uh, I think you and I both know uh, the situation that was in San Francisco many years ago with a Presbyterian church where um, you mentioned musicians, an organist was employed who turned out to be a practicing homosexual. Uh, that person voluntarily agreed to step down because they didn't make that known at the time they were hired. And the result was over a period of several years, that church was firebombed. Uh, the, it was picketed. There were threatening, menacing uh, people showing up at the services, all because this pastor and his church made a stand for biblical law. And that's the sort of thing that maybe too few Christians, let me put it this way. I, I, I don't think that uh, the, the Christian church and faithful Christians are any danger of practicing, you know, fundamental separation too much nowadays. If anything, we have all grown uh, too comfortable yes. with the culture. Well, you brought up a coffee shop. Well, I knew a Christian man who's now a pastor, but before he was a pastor, he had a bakery and he would have tracks out and things that would point to the Christian faith. And he would have Christian music that would play. In other words, there's plenty of things you can do to identify yourself as who you are. So if somebody comes in and wants to buy a cupcake and is, you know, a man dressed as a woman, I, I don't think, especially since with our current situation, you'd have more hassle by saying you can't come here. It's at the point at which people said, okay, now I want you to make a cake or, and I want you to put a picture of it because now you can do that if two men kissing. There comes a point at which the, the believer has to say, I won't do that. I'm not going to do anything that endorses something that is a violation of the, the law of my God. And that's where I think we've been afraid as a Christian culture to establish this is what we believe. There are lots of different ways that someone can approach it. And that's why I said you have to first start with the law of God, and then you gain wisdom and understanding, and then you have discernment. You know, what are the things that I will draw a line in the sand or not? And that's why, Charles, I'd be very remiss, and I was, to just respond or, you know, when I asked other people, how would you respond, to tell this listener, okay, this is what you should do, because I'm not in his situation. He has got to be faithful to his commitment to Christ. He has to know, as the scripture says, anything that's not done in faith is sin. So, if in faith, you'll sit down with somebody who's at war with God, and you know that 
unchanged, that person is heading toward eternal punishment. Then the loving thing to do is to tell the person the truth. At best, get the blood off your hands when you had a chance to communicate truth. And then be willing to have God be with you in the face of whatever happens. And so rather than taking a stand and having a, a, a big sign that says we do not, you know, serve homosexuals, you certainly can on a one-to-one basis present the truth to people if they're interested to let you know. But there are people who have been converted out of the homosexual and lesbian lifestyle and even to some degree reports I've seen lately about transgender lifestyle. So they're not less image bearers of God, but our responsibility is the same to speak the truth in love, but not sugarcoat it so that they don't even know you're speaking the truth. Yes. One of the things about um, people involved in anti-biblical lifestyles and promoting anti-biblical beliefs is that they, I think because the internally in, in the psychological makeup of being in rebellion against God, they know that either what they do, what they believe, the connection between that, they, they know that there's a fundamental problem with that. And so they're always looking for affirmation. You know, the, 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 the true follower of Jesus, the true believer in God's law word, is looking for affirmation from nowhere else. Yes. Uh, that's one of the things we find in those letters to the seven churches, that some of these churches in these communities were looking for affirmation from the community of pagans and unbelieving Jews, um, but we're not supposed to do that. And so these people will, will inevitably more or less demand, whether it's by the way they act, the way they dress, the things they say, the things they do, that you have to give either implicit or explicit approval to what they believe that's so contrary to what God's law teaches. I can think of a particular business um, that they, uh, you know, they've had a practice that we don't care what your sexual orientation is, what your marital situation is, or any of this business. We will hire you if you are employable. But they went from simply having that seemingly broad-minded attitude to where now there are certain times of the year where they dedicate an entire month to promoting uh, the homosexual lifestyle, yes, uh, flying pride flags in their stores. And so we've moved from something that seems, you know, very broad-minded to something that overtly promotes, in this case, uh, a sexual morality that is totally contrary to God's law. But you don't get there without having get to the first, gotten to the first point. All right. And this goes back to the God doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sin, which is baloney because you never encounter sin just walking down the street. Uh, sin is something that a sinner does. And so it's a way in which to bring this compromise in. God is very specific. There are things he hates. Go, like I said, go back and read the letters to the seven churches. Very specific on what he likes and doesn't like. And the outcome, not for the guys who don't embrace Christ and who never were going to, but those who profess Christ, he's saying there's a standard you must live up to, and he who is faithful will overcome. He'll get a crown. It, it, it's not like Jesus promised them that you do some good things, therefore nothing bad will never will ever happen to you. He said, you've done some good things. However, if you don't change your ways, bad things will happen to you. 
but when you're faithful, I'll be with you no matter what happens. A lot of modern Christians in the West don't want to hear that. They, they want to hear that they can still go on vacation. They want to hear that there won't be you know, disruption in their lifestyle. That's never been the promise of the Christian life. I would invite our listeners who may have questions about some of this concerning how the Lord reacts to this. Uh, I, I read a passage from Second Chronicles where the question was asked of this king, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Well, if you can do this online or if you have your own computer software program, just type in the words, God hates. And you may be surprised to learn that scriptures have many references to the Lord hating certain people and certain things. So yes, it's interesting you brought this up because I spoke on this topic just recently at my church. Yes, the Lord hates the sin and the sinner. This is what he says. Uh, that, that may make people in you know, um, contemporary churches feel uncomfortable, in which case you're simply uncomfortable with what, what God's word clearly states. Oh, well, you know, that's just one of those Old Testament things sometimes is the rejoinder. Well, in the letters to the seven churches, the Lord Jesus, who speaks the words of these letters, clearly says, you're tolerating these people called the Nicolaitans, whom I hate, period. The With issue no apology. Is, he doesn't apologize going, I knew it's wrong to hate, but I do it anyway. <laughs> right. So the question is, okay, pe- people that wrong us, uh, either by their lifestyle or the things that they do, are, are we to hate them? Well, in one sense, perhaps, but in another sense, that doesn't mean we have a license to go up to them or do something to them that violates God's law. We don't steal from these people. We don't murder them. We don't lie about them. On the other hand, we are not to tolerate in a way that affirms the evil things that they do and that they promote. Unfortunately, God's people uh, have lost the capacity in, in so many cases because of the influence of these things we mentioned earlier, like pietism, to properly discern. Uh, how to do these things and, and where it's called for. And friends, you can bet that the enemies of God, they certainly have not lost the ability to do that. And what we're seeing in our culture today is the steamroller of these people who hate God's law, and they're doing everything they can to stamp it out. They won't have you as a friend for sure if you make a consistent stand for biblical law. Indeed. And here's an interesting thing to consider. We really can't have community. We can't have what in the 60s was promising, the age of Aquarius, where peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. Uh, It didn't happen that way. On the contrary, what did it produce? Chaos, degeneracy, and anarchy. So when we talk about that humanism is falling apart, we can see it in our own day, right? We've lost the ability to communicate. We now have to um, figure out that pronouns, which have customarily in all languages been replacement for nouns, and those nouns meant something. So a wife was a female noun that would require a pronouns of she or her. Nobody had to ask somebody what their pronouns were. Because the language, the ability to interact and communicate with each other was based on this coherence that only scripture can provide. And so if anybody tries to say, oh, there have been other cultures that have succeeded, 
only in as much to the degree they succeeded by borrowing things which were true because that's how God created it. So in answer to our listener and then those who might have a similar situation or question, your best defense, which also becomes your best offense, is to know God's word, be faithful to it, and recognize, as is the promise that he gave to those seven churches, which these promises are to us today as well, is that when we're faithful, we will not be fighting the battles alone. Christ, our king, as it says in the catechism, will fight his enemies and ours. And we just want to make sure that our enemies are his enemies, not enemies because we don't like what that person said to me. I fully agree. Uh, And I would encourage our listeners to whatever it takes, turn off the TV, devote your time to studying God's law, word and Holy scripture. Uh, The Chalcedon website, as I've mentioned before, has a link or a a tab at the top called resources where you can research the subject of friendship, uh, a thousand other things and find articles, um, chapters and books, uh, audio lectures that are available to you. So if, if people are walking around not knowing how to deal with these things, they need to know there are options and there are resources available to help you in following God's word in terms of developing a theology of friendship. So I would encourage our listeners to do that. And I would agree with that and just say, this isn't the final discussion on this topic. I'm hoping that as a result, Charles, of our discussion, people start discussing it amongst themselves and reevaluating how they should then live, to use Francis Schaeffer's um, title. But in terms of that is what's important. At the end of the day, what various groups or political parties or the majority of people think about us is less important, as you say, than how it will be when we stand before the Lord and give an account for what we thought, what we said, and what we did. I agree. Thank you, Andrea. Listeners, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you get in touch with us. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk with you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.